Dana Dornzeif is a designer turned philanthropist whose activities help people the world over. When tragedy struck close to home, she started the Lazarex Foundation, which she founded in order to connect people with clinical trials and help the economically disadvantaged to be able to capitalize on trials that they might not otherwise have access. In the development of the foundation, she realized the large racial gap that exists in clinical trials. So we discussed that and how her foundation is trying to close that gap. We also discuss her inspiration for starting the foundation and the federal regulations she had to overcome in order to help the economically disadvantaged. In addition to Lazarex, she supports World Vision, an international humanitarian agency through which she supports microeconomic enterprise, agriculture, and literacy programs in the Islamic Republic of Mauritania and in partnership with the Conrad and Hilton Foundation, well water drilling in Mali, Ghana, Niger, Ethiopia, Zambia, and Malawi. She is also a supporter of the Alzheimer's Association Cerebral Spinal Fluid Quality Control Program, launched in 2009, that brought together world laboratories with the aim of standardizing the measurement potential of Alzheimer biomarkers in CSF. She also serves on the board of directors of Epius Biotechnologies, a biopharmaceutical company developing genetic medicine for the treatment of cancer, and she is also actively involved in the USC Dornzeif College of Letters, Arts, and Sciences. Welcome to the Physician's Guide to Doctoring, a practical guide for practicing physicians. Dr. Bradley Block interviews experts in and out of medicine to find out everything we should have been learning while we were memorizing Krebs cycle. The ideas expressed on this podcast are those of the interviewer and interviewee and do not represent those of their respective employers. And now, here's Dr. Bradley Block. Dana Dornzeif, thanks so much for being on the podcast. Hey, Brad, thank you so much for this opportunity. I really appreciate it. So can you share with us the origin story of Lazarex? I, I've heard you tell it a few times, and it must be hard to tell, but I think it's it's really important for, for our physician audience to hear. Sure. So my youngest sister's husband, Mike was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer in 2003. And of course, you all know what the outcomes are for most pancreatic cancer patients. And so, you know, we collectively felt that if we did the same thing everyone else did, we would not get different results. And so while Mike went on to standard of care chemotherapy, they tasked me with trying to find a clinical trial. Which is fine, except that I have zero medical background. (laughs) You know, I was uh, actually a designer by trade. So um, literally started from scratch, uh, went to clinicaltrials.gov, navigated through that system, you know, for weeks. Uh, And at the end of, you know, five weeks, I had a list of three or four clinical trials that I thought sounded reasonable and, you know, for me as a lay person, I had to, you know, I'd read two sentences of a protocol and look up 10 words in medicaldictionary.com and go, you know, it was a very, very tedious process. And once we identified those trials, then I had to contact the sponsors and see, you know, how we could get Mike enrolled, etc. And it was just very perplexing to me. And I, I just thought to myself, you know, how do most people do this, right? I did. I don't have cancer. I wasn't taking care of someone with cancer. 
My youngest son had just gone off to college. I just sold my business. So I was like in the perfect position to be able to, to do that work. And it still took me five weeks to get it done. So that was my first aha moment was just the challenge for cancer patients and their caregivers to identify the clinical trial opportunities. We did get Mike enrolled in a trial and fortunately he responded well. And just the nature of the, you know, how cancer patients are treated, one pancreatic patient talks to another pancreatic patient, they share what they're doing, et cetera. And they started to ask him, you know, hey, Mike, what are you doing? I, I want to do what you're doing. And he would say to them, just call my sister-in-law, Dana. She'll help you. And that is literally how Lazarex Cancer Foundation started. And then would talk to these other patients. Of course, I shared with them the information that I had. And then turn, when the conversation turned to logistics, they would say, oh, I can't. I can't do that. And I'm saying, what, what do you mean you can't do that? You have to do that. I can't afford it. And after the third or fourth patient that I spoke to, I realized that the only reason Mike was able to take advantage of medical breakthroughs and technology was because he had a family who could write a check and support him through the process of covering you know, all of those out-of-pocket costs to get him where he needed to be when he needed to be there. So that really left um, an impression on me. I, ju I just felt, you know, and I, I, I just said, uh, you know, to myself, oh, someday somebody ought to do something about this. And I, I didn't really think that would ever be me. But my, you know, we lost Mike 19 months later. So we had, a, you know, a good extra period of time with a good uh, quality of life with his family. And just felt a moral and fundamental obligation to, to do something. And so in 2006, I formed a 501c3, started Lazarus Cancer Foundation, and never looked back. Um, and that's 6,000 patients ago. Let's talk about this chronologically. The Sorry, the 501c? 501c3. Uh -huh. 501c3. Okay. So how did you go from, you know, essentially matchmaking, right? You're, mat you're trying to matchmake patients with trials to you know, formalizing it. Like what, were the, what are the nuts and bolts of that? Let's say, let's say one of our listeners has an idea, right? I want to start a foundation, right? Yeah. How do you, where do you begin with something like that? Well, I mean, honestly, I didn't. I, you know, it, it, this all happened very organically, right? But I found that I had very good intentions and, and a desire to help these other patients who were just really going through the, the terrible time that I knew they were going through because we went, went through it personally, right? But I got to a point where sharing information wasn't enough. You know, to, to tell a patient, oh, well, there's this clinical trial or there's that clinical trial, and for them not to be able to, to get to it, you know, was really bothersome to me. So I realized that in order for me to address that problem, I had to have a vehicle that allowed me to raise money so that we could reimburse those travel expenses. And that vehicle was the 501c3. So we got a lawyer to start the 501c3 
for us. And that allowed me to approach potential donors. And, you know, you start out and you're, you're looking at your circle of friends and your business associates and your family, right? And you, you tap all of them on the shoulder and then, you know, you just kind of keep growing that effort. And, and so really that's, that's how it all began. I never sat down and said, I'm going to write a business plan and I'm going to have a nonprofit and this is what I want to do. No, this was all a response to a terrible, terrible situation and feeling like I really could do something positive around it. And it's turned into an incredible legacy for your brother-in-law. It has. Um, And, you know, this year, uh, 2020, even with COVID and all of the clinical research programs shutting down, you know, and uh, enrollment of of new patients and starting new trials, we will end this year having assisted over 1,000 patients. Wow. And when I look back, when we started year one, one, I think had three patients. Year two was nine. Year three was 14. You know, um, the, the first year we did 25 patients, we were jumping for joy. And, and here we are, a thousand patients. And the, but this is the thing. There are so, there are tens of thousands more who need our help, right? And so we can't get tired. We just have to keep putting one foot in front of the other and growing this Lazarex Cancer Foundation for the benefit of all who need us. It sounds like there are really two types of services that you provide, right? There's one, there's the matchmaking, finding the clinical trials. But then there's the second, there's the financial assistance for the clinical trials. Is that, is that correct? It's like almost like two, almost two completely different arms that's exactly right. So the first thing that we do, you know, what what the way I explain it is that we're all about removing barriers for patients so that we can create a platform of equitable access to cancer clinical trials. So the first barrier is knowledge, right? If, if patients don't know about a clinical trial, they won't go or they're not going to be able to even think about, you know, do I or don't I want to participate? So that's why the navigation piece is so important. Then you have, you know, financial toxicity. Cancer is expensive. It devastates so many people financially. And for those individuals to consider participating in a cancer clinical trial where they're constantly reaching into their pocket, you know, where there's pretty much nothing left to try and participate in a clinical trial, it doesn't happen. Patients, you know, they start making decisions based on their financial situation instead of what's best for them. So we want to remove that from the the decision-making equation and just allow them to focus on what's best for them. Support network. Unfortunately, now 54% of the time, I believe it is, a cancer clinical trial is not in your backyard and it requires that you travel extensively, right? So that means either long trips in the car right now during COVID airline, lodging, even just traveling, a tank of gas and tolls and parking. I mean, parking out here in San Francisco is $40 a day, right? These patients cannot afford that on a routine basis. 
So we, that's why we provide that reimbursement so we can address their financial concerns. We also cover the cost of a travel companion because many times patients who are, who are participating in a clinical trial have a compromised performance status and they're not able to drive or they're not able to travel on their own, right? They need someone with them to administer care but they also don't want to be alone at that time, at that stage in their disease, right? And they, they need to bring part of their support network with them. So that's why we, we about two years after I started Lazarex, I realized we needed to include a travel companion for these patients. Then we have a whole nother level of, of barriers that we address, cultural barriers, language barriers, historic, bar- you know, the, the fear, the the, um, the mistrust that our medical abuses have caused, um, and finally, socioeconomic status. To address all of those barriers requires that we provide navigation assistance, but also assistance with reimbursing travel expenses, and we also do a lot of community outreach and engagement amongst minority communities to try and bring them into the fold of not just cancer clinical trials, but to improve cancer health outcomes across the continuum of cancer care. So this is one of my favorite parts about your your organization is, is that, you know, you recognize the huge racial disparities that exist right now in clinical trials. And actually, I think there's a, a COVID, I, I don't know if it's a vaccine trial or a treatment uh, medication trial, but they had to extend their enrollment period because after they'd finished what they thought would be the appropriate enrollment period, they realized uh, that a lot of minorities were extraordinarily underrepresented. So they had to, to continue the enrollment period. So this is, this is a huge problem in medicine. So what did you learn about the racial disparities that exist right now in clinical trials? So I've really learned a lot about racial disparities in clinical trials over the years. And, you know, to be honest with you, Brad, when the medical institutions that we work with, where we send patients to clinical trials, they asked about mm, six or seven years ago, hey, we really appreciate you supporting patients in clinical trials. Can you help us improve our diversity in clinical trials? And at first I thought, no, like that's... (laughs) How, how am I going to be able to do that, right? But it really was a nagging question. And I, I really thought long and hard about it. And I said, okay, well, I need to get smarter. So I started reading articles and I started talking to uh, principal investigators and, and academicians and to a lot of drug sponsors. And I realized this really is a serious problem, right? So on the enrollment side, 5% of cancer patients who are eligible to participate in trials actually do. Of those, a very small percentage are come from our minority communities combined, right? I think it's five or 6%, so, so, so small. And it is not a statistically relevant enough number to be able to understand the the scientific efficacy of a novel therapeutic for 
the various um, segments of our population. So why does that exist? And that's where I just learned so much. So first of all, a big part of it, um, especially for the African-American community, is lack of trust, fear, and just not understanding the, the whole clinical trial process because of the medical abuses that have occurred. So that's one thing that we, we have to address and, 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 then, and that we are addressing, right? Language. If, Eng if English is not your first language, it's very, very difficult to, to hear a physician talk in English, understand what they're trying to say. I mean, when you go through the clinical trial consent process, even if English is your first language, it's really challenging, right? So just add to that a language barrier, okay? Because I would argue that it's challenging for an otolaryngologist who is involved in an oncology clinical trial to understand everything. So even from specialties, even if you're a trained physician, a trained scientist, if it's somewhere out of your area of expertise, this stuff is just remarkably complicated. It, it is complicated. It's so hard to wrap your head around. It is remarkably complicated. If you are an individual who has a low socioeconomic standing, right? And sadly, poverty disproportionately affects our communities of color. So the majority of people who are, who are you know, poor are people of color. A cancer diagnosis for an individual in that situation, you know, they're already doing everything they can do just to survive the day. Now you throw a cancer diagnosis on top of it and it's just, it's the straw that breaks the camel's back, right? They don't know what to do. They don't have the resources to be able to deal with it. It's easy for people to say, well, you know, you need to eat better. You need to eat a healthier diet. You need to exercise. Well, many people who are in that situation don't have, they live in food deserts. They don't have access to healthy food. They don't feel safe going outside and trying to exercise. And they don't necessarily have Fitness 19 on the corner that they can go to and, and, and work out at a gym. You've got a lot of single moms who are working multiple jobs just to put food on their table for their, their children. It's across the board a struggle. And the, the thing that most has been most recently my biggest bugaboo is this whole issue around payer mix because, and government-assisted insurance plans because many times those plans if you have government-assisted medical insurance, you are relegated to go to a specific clinic for your health care. So first of all, it's really hard to get an appointment. Secondly, if you do get an appointment and you do have cancer, you know, their pharmacy uh, formularies and what they're allowed to prescribe, is, it's all negotiated. So they're getting whatever the, the cheap stuff is, not the good stuff. And then sometimes the, the cheap stuff is the good stuff, but most of the time it isn't, right? So they are only given what, what the pharmacy formulary has to give. And guess how many of those locations actually have cancer clinical trials? A big fat zero for the most part. I, would, I mean, very, very few and far between. So even if you, if you have the luxury of insurance, or, and even if you're, you have a job that allows you to take 
paid leave to go to a doctor's appointment, right? You're still not going to have get access to the latest and greatest. So this is a very complex problem, but it's not unresolvable. I really feel that we can do better. We can do much, much better, but it's going to be a bottom up approach. It can't be top down. It can't be mandated. We have to embrace these communities. We have to have culturally appropriate programs. We have to have boots on the ground in a consistent and community led way. And once we do that and we get their ear, we can start to make these small, you know, incremental changes with them and hopefully improve cancer health outcomes and ultimately health disparities. How is it that you are able to get into the communities and, and gain, because I see um, one of my partners is fond of saying, uh, the answer is money. Now tell me the question, right? Like, so in terms of funding, like you can, if you, if you raise enough money, you can subsidize people to be able to travel and fine, but to gain the trust of the community, that doesn't seem like something that's solved financially. So how, how is it that, you know, these, these medical, these communities that have historically good foundation for distrust of the medical community, how do we regain their trust? How have you been doing it? Well, I am a graduate of Drexel University in Philadelphia, and Philadelphia has some of the worst cancer health outcomes of, of any top 10 most populated city in, in the country. They also have a very poor African-American population in West Philadelphia, which is the area where we're now uh, working in. And Drexel uh, is a very civic-minded university, and their president made a commitment to the surrounding community that the resources that the university has to offer are the resources of the community. And he's really stuck to that. And as a result of that, over the past five or six years, we've had a program that we developed in the 10 of the poorest neighborhoods, African-American neighborhoods in West Philadelphia. But we've developed it with people who are African-American, who come from those neighborhoods, who understand the history of those neighborhoods. A couple of the folks that we're working with on the team from Drexel, you know, they do have medical background and they are involved in a lot of the social well-being aspects of, you know, what to do out in a community like this. So we wanted to start a community center that would help reach individuals and provide resources that they needed to better themselves so that, you know, so, I mean, it was simple things like helping them write resumes, teaching them how to use computers. Many of them, you know, they, they don't have internet access. They can't afford to pay for the internet. They don't even have computers. They don't know how to work computers. They're, you know, you can't even, you can't apply for a job if you don't know how to use a computer. Legal issues, expungement, there's all kinds of issues that these community members have to deal with 
And we asked them, what do you need? What would make, not we're going to give you this to make your life better. We went to them and said, what do you need to make your life better? And it was amazing what they came back to us with. And ever so slowly, we've been able to develop these community programs with them, with their ideas, with their voice, and with people who look like them. And, you know, it took a good five years, but we were able to chip away at that lack of trust. And now these 10 neighborhoods really view that community center as their community center. So when I wanted to engage those communities around cancer health outcomes, it was easy for me to go back to the community and say, hey, let's take this to a deeper level. And can we talk about cancer? And can we talk about your beliefs, your fears, your issues around cancer? And they said, yes. I mean, it was like, on the top of their, their list of, of health issues that they, they wanted to deal with. And so it's just really important that these, the, a program like that, it has to be place-based. You have to go where, their peop- where the people are. You cannot expect them to come to you. It has to be community-led, right? They have to feel that they're in the driver's seat around what's happening in their community And it has to be culturally appropriate. It has to be administered by individuals that they feel comfortable with. So it was based on those principles that we we built this program. And we're really excited about what we're putting together there in West Philadelphia. The community members are really excited about having a voice in their health future. And once we resolve this little thing called COVID, We're looking forward to actually being able to implement these programs and and ideas that we've collectively put together. When you started the community center, the intention all along was for this to become a conduit for the foundation? Or this was kind of, because I I know you do a lot of, you have a lot of humanitarian um, missions, right? Um, Yeah. Yeah. The the Lazarus Foundation is not your only... uh, humanitarian, you know, uh, is not your only philanthropy. Um, So was this a different arm of your philanthropy that you then incorporated or the the intention was all along was for this to be part of Lazarex? It was a a different arm of our philanthropy that we wanted to provide an opportunity for these communities to have access to the resources they needed to build a better life for themselves right, to, 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 you know, and do it in a sustainable way, right, to give them the tools that they needed to be able to have a better life. And so a lot of the activities that we do at the center, that, that's what, what the focus is on. And it, it just so happened that when we started that, you know, six years ago, I was concurrently working at Lazarus Cancer Foundation and trying to come up with a sustainable approach to removing these barriers. And three or four years later, those two projects just came, they came together. And I said, oh my gosh, this is such a, it it is such a difficult issue 
right? This health disparities, especially in cancer, is so difficult to deal with. However, we have a community of people that we've worked with for years now who trust us and who know we only have their best interests at heart. And we deliver. We walk our talk. We do what we say we're going to do, right? And um, so that's when the light bulb went on. And I thought, my gosh, you know, I can, I can go back to these communities and ask, can we have a deeper conversation around health outcomes in cancer? And they said, absolutely. I mean, we live in fear. I mean, and for many of these community members, you know, they look at cancer diagnosis as, as death. That's it. So I was thrilled at the level of response that we got. And the team that I have there through the university, they're amazing. And uh, I think they interviewed 440 community members to get their input around brochures, messaging, videos. Like we're trying to really build this program, this community impact program into something that we can replicate and take it from Philadelphia to Los Angeles or Miami or Chicago or right and and try and lay the groundwork there. Now, you know, we're not always going to have a bricks and mortar opportunity like we do in West Philadelphia, but that is has been just a tremendous demonstration project, you know, to show that we it really can be done. And out of that was born this concept that we have called the Cancer Wellness Hub and we're looking at that now into developing that as kind of like a pop-up, you know, so that uh, we can engage with community advocacy organizations, churches, et cetera, and, you know, just have like a, a, a cancer wellness pop-up concept where we can serve the community, but we don't have the overhead of bricks and mortar because that's just not, that's not a sustainable plan. It's too expensive. Yeah, if there's a brick and mortar community center, it doesn't need to be your brick and mortar community center. Because some, the, the one that's already there and then, you yes. know, utilizing those community leaders to help get your, your information about your foundation out. Exactly. And then you have to partner with academic institutions, the medical institutions. They're all looking for training and internship opportunities. And so being able to, or schools of social work, they're all looking for opportunities to engage with the community. And so, you know, this is, I'm kind of sharing with you the the latest and greatest at Lazarex Cancer Foundation. So stay tuned and we'll, we'll revisit this a year from now and, and see how we did. But I think it has a lot of potential and it's very timely. We started this long before COVID showed us the the true uh, nature of health disparities. So I feel like we have a little bit of a jump on it, um, but we can't go backwards. We just can't. We cannot. We cannot let this happen again. Yeah. You guys, you're doing, you're really doing incredible work, but the, the racial disparities that socioeconomic status, those were not your only barriers. They were actually legal barriers to the foundation, right? Because you can't- Oh my gosh, yes. You can't so, pay someone as a, you know, you'd be, you'd be, a, we'd be afraid of people getting taken advantage of, right? If they could be paid to be in a clinical trial, you know, they're already having a tough time because they're cancer, they can't work. Sure, I'll take it. Um, and that creates a conflict of interest, right? So there was, 
the FDA had regulations that ended up being a barrier to you. Exactly. You would think, and everyone would say to me, well, just go to pharma. They should fund this all day long, right? They need patients in clinical trials. You have patients who need trials. Let's just put them together. So I'd go to pharma and, and say, hey, you know, will you support our work? And every single time, no, we can't, you know, it's considered coercion or inducement. There's strict guidance around not, not pay to play, not enticing patients financially to participate in trials. And so I said, okay, well, like, how did we get here, right? So again, I had to go out and do a lot of research and figure out, like, how did, how did this, we create this problem where you've got 10,000 cancer clinical trials enrolling patients, and you've got tens of thousands of patients who need cancer clinical trials to survive, and yet they never come together right? Like, why did that happen? So it all stems around these barriers that we're talking about, and primarily knowledge and, and financial barriers, right? So the FDA, because of the historical medical abuses that have taken place, um, that have, have really um, impacted uh, minority communities, the FDA had guidance language that said you cannot induce or coerce a patient to participate with financial gain, right? And so I started taking it and, and I went to pharma and I said, look, if I can get the FDA, if we can fix that coercion and inducement issue, can we have a different conversation? And the answer was tentative, yes, we can, right? So we went to the FDA, we, I got, oh my gosh, I can't even tell you how much time I spent on the Hill talking to congressmen from both sides of the aisle, we put communications together with the FDA. And really what I wanted, Brad, is I wanted them to carve out reimbursement separate of financially paying someone to participate in a trial. Because those are two different things, right? Reimbursement creates parity. It enables an individual who cannot afford the out-of-pocket expenses to be able to participate in a trial. You're not financially enriching them. You're simply paying them back. And so fortunately, the FDA responded very rapidly to that. And eight months later, I had that guidance language. And that really laid the groundwork for us to be able to launch our current program, our institutional level program called IMPACT, where we're undertaking specific activities at the institutional level to show with scientific rigor, it itself is actually a, a clinical trial. It's um, interventional, a non-therapeutic clinical trial to show that by undertaking specific activities, we can positively influence enrollment and retention in clinical trials and improve diversity. From January 1, 2018 through August 31 of this year, we had 334 participants in our impact study. It's at two sites, UCSF San Francisco and USC Norris in Los Angeles. 63% of those participants who participated in that program are minorities. 63%. Wow. Remember the national average is five. five. Yeah. Right? Wow. Okay. 52, 52% come from households earning $25,000 or less. 
I mean, these are individuals who could never consider participating in a trial without that reimbursement program. So our whole goal is to get rid of this as a problem, have pharma recognize, okay, if we include reimbursement as part of our, our protocol budgets, then we can, we can get rid of this problem. And if we have our principal investigators who are conducting clinical trials, introducing patients, letting them know that they can be reimbursed for the out-of-pocket expenses when they're going through that very you know, cumbersome clinical trial consent process, then we see that we can, in fact, improve enrollment and, and have a, a serious impact on diversity. In, in trials. So if I'm understanding this correctly, you changed it such that now pharmaceutical companies can reimburse people is, or is it, or, or is this just for the impact study and they're going to see how it works out or this is now a, a change in the industry. It is a change in the industry. Wow. Is it a wholesale change in the industry? And, and we're also doing work at the state level as well because IRBs get a little, you know, they're also concerned about the whole coercion and inducement issue. Yeah. So, yeah, but that, that FDA language, that really was a game changer for us. And I have to say the pharmaceutical industry gets a lot of bad knocks, right? But we have had so many pharma companies, you know, step up and, and say, we want to support this work. This work is important. And especially now, they're very, very focused on improving diversity and, and health disparities. And so, so I'm, I'm really very hopeful that we'll start to see some, some changes here. So what's next? What's next for Lazarex? Oh, my gosh. So we've proven that we can through the impact program, uh, increase enrollment and diversity in trials at comprehensive cancer centers. Now what we need to do is we need to undertake those same activities at the community level because that's where the vast majority of patients are being seen. And so it's really important if we're going to have a sustainable approach and we're going to really um, bring the majority of patients into the fold of clinical trials that we meet them where they are, right? So again, it's place-based. So we need to, uh, our, our next uh, layer of work is going to be, you know, taking those same principles, going out uh, into the community environment and just seeing if we can't recreate the success that we've had with impact and the second thing that I am really, really excited about is deploying the whole concept of the Cancer Wellness Hub as part of that. I'm very excited about that opportunity. I think we're going to see huge change there. So if we have an oncologist listening and they have a patient that they think might qualify, uh, where do they find you and where do we find out more? About so, the Lazarex Foundation. Yeah, so Lazarex, our website is www.lazarex.org. And I'm going to spell it. It's L-A-Z-A-R-E-X.org. And all they have to do is go to our website, contact us either through email or inquiry, or just give us a call. We have a whole patient services team standing ready um, to, to assist and yeah, I mean, we exist to be a resource 
for cancer patients and for oncologists who, if someone's failed standard of care or second line or third line treatment, and you're not associated with a research institution, you're probably not going to be able to offer a clinical trial as an alternative, but we can, right? So it, it's, it's, kind of, it's, a, it's a way of extending hope and extending opportunity for those patients that they're not able to help any longer. And speeding up the research process because you're, de- you're shortening by, by increasing the enrollment, you're shortening the enrollment period, you're allowing these trials to go on faster and, you're, and the, the, they come to their conclusions faster and then it's on to the next iteration, right? So the advances exactly. are able to happen faster with faster enrollment. And, and along those lines, you know, it's amazing. It, 48% of clinical trials never complete. 11% never enroll a single patient. 37% do not finish on time or at all, not because the therapeutic didn't work, but because they didn't enroll enough patients. So we may have lost the opportunity for oh so many you know, treatments, right, that could have worked that we'll never know because we were not able to enroll enough patients. And so yeah, so if we can Im- improve enrollment, we can get through these trials faster. And let's face it, it's just as important to know if your drug has therapeutic benefit it is to, as it is to know if it doesn't. So if it's a drug that's not going to work, you want to know that as fast as you can so you can cut and move to the next, right, opportunity. Yeah, so increasing enrollment and uh, especially increasing diversity. Those are, are two things that we really need to focus on. Incredible, incredible. Well, Dana Dornzeif, Lazarex.org, thank you so much for your time and thank you so much for all the incredible work you're doing. Oh, Brad, thank you. I really appreciate the opportunity to talk about this and just to shed some light on, on this issue. That was Dr. Bradley Block at the Physician's Guide to Doctoring. He can be found at physiciansguidetodoctoring.com or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have a question for a previous guest or have an idea for a future episode, send a comment on the webpage. Also, please be sure to leave a five-star review on your preferred podcast platform. We'll see you next time on the Physician's Guide to Doctoring.